Thanks. Uh, my name is Malcolm Albrook. I'm the uh, managing editor of the Australian Dictionary of Biography and also a research fellow in the National Centre of Biography. And uh, I'll, uh, it falls to me to uh, read the acknowledgement of uh, traditional ownership uh, before we get started. Uh, we acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal and the Ngambri people, past and present. Now, just before I introduce uh, Anne-Marie Schwertlich, I'll just go through a couple of the housekeeping uh, matters, uh, which are very important. Uh, firstly, uh, food will be served upstairs, uh, morning and afternoon tea and lunch. Secondly, uh, uh, and this is actually quite important because uh, uh, I don't think anyone wants to spend the night not locked in the National Library, uh, no matter how much we might love it. Uh, but the, part, the last session uh, today uh, will finish at 5 o'clock, 5.30, will we'll be escorted out because the National Library actually closes at 5 o'clock. So if you could please bring, bring your bags uh, along to the final session so that we can make a quick getaway. Um, the toilets, probably everyone has found them, but uh, just for those who, uh, who haven't, they're just outside or, or up on the, the next floor, the ground floor. Uh, they're quite easy to find. Um, there's free Wi-Fi in the National Library if you need it. Um, it's just a matter of logging on to the National Library site. It's an open site and quite easy to get on. The bookshop. Uh, you'll notice in your conference uh, show bag that there's a, a little uh, uh, certificate that grants you a 10% discount on any purchases in the, in the bookshop. And I have to say, it really is a, a, a wonderful bookshop. And so I'd urge you, if you have the time or the inclination, to uh, go and browse for a few minutes. It's got a great collection of Australian literature, for example, I'm a regular customer there, 10% off. And uh, finally, could I ask everyone to turn your mobile phones off or put them on mute? Um, yes, I see people sort of rummaging in their bags. Um, but if you could do that, please, that'd be much appreciated. Uh, without further ado, I'd uh, now like to introduce uh, Anne-Marie Schwertlich, the Director General of the National Library. Thank you very much, Malcolm. It is an enormous pleasure to welcome you to the National Library and to this conference exploring the cultural journeys of dictionaries of national biography. It is entirely appropriate that the National Library is co-hosting this conference with the Australian Dictionary of Biography. We too have a history together. 21 years ago, we co-hosted with the Humanities Research Centre at the ANU, the last international conference about national biographies held in Canberra. That conference in 1995 set itself to discuss whether national dictionaries are instruments designed to vindicate past glories and national supremacy, or are they learned and specialised works without the earlier ideological overtones? These questions discussed at the conference resulted in a publication 
national biographies and national identity, a critical approach to theory and editorial practice. And I'm told a collection will also arise out of the deliberations of these two days. In the last 20 years, the traditional model of dictionaries of national biographies has been transformed. Most dictionary projects have made the cultural journey from book to online repositories. And there has been a broadening of the notion of who should be included in national biographical dictionaries. The chairman of the supervisory committee of the new Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, Keith Thomas, concluded his 2004 Leslie Stevens special lecture by expressing his hope that the genre of the dictionary itself would develop into a database so vast to be a true national biography. It is timely then to consider the cultural journey dictionaries of biography have taken and to assess the extent to which they are developing into true national biographies. The library has long been a partner of the ADB. Not least, we have shared the cultural journey into online resources. Our histories are intertwined, even to the extent of sharing a birthday of sorts. Certainly, we shared the same speaker. Sir Robert Menzies laid the foundation stone for this building 50 years ago on the 31st of March, 1966. And the library is a testament to the value that Menzies placed upon both the national capital as a symbol of nation building and the library as a symbol for the transformational power of knowledge and of thought. He was busy in that month of March because on the 4th of March, he had launched volume one of the ADB at University House, describing it as a considerable venture against great odds. Here at the library, we hold the notes for both of Menzies' speeches in his papers. ADB staff have always used the library's facilities, some more than others. Jim Gibney was a research officer and editor with the ADB from 1965 to 1983. So frequent a user of the library's collections was he that in 1968 he was given ticket number one for the library's advanced studies reading room. And in fact, Manning Clark once said that Jim Gibney, when standing on the stairs of the library in the early morning was like a man anxiously waiting to meet his lover. We are still ardent admirers of the other and have developed a strong partnership. Let me give you three examples. First, we are collaborators and partner organizations for the purposes of infrastructure development. The National Library was a partner in the university's ARC application to move the ADB online between 2004 and 2006. The ADB was also one of the first online sites to link directly to digitized material, photographs held by the library through Picture Australia. And it seems quite tame or old hat now, but then it was revolutionary. Secondly, we increasingly share data. To begin with, 
It was one way, with access to databases the library maintained, such as Music Australia, Australia Dancing, the Register of Australian Archives and Manuscripts. However, since the ADB went online in 2006, and after Trove was launched in 2009, my predecessor as Director General, Jan Fullerton, and the manager of Resource Discovery Services, Basil Dewhurst, negotiated a memorandum of understanding with the ADB, which was signed in 2012. And this formalized mutual data harvesting. The ADB reproduces published obituaries on its Obituaries Australia website, trove links to ADB and Obituary Australia entries. This interoperability of information infrastructure has benefited researchers and scholars. And most recently, we have cooperated in the development of digitized resources and data management. In 2014, the ADB began digitizing out of copyright compendia of Australian biography, such as Who's Who of the World of Women, and placing the individual records in People Australia. Following talks with library staff, it was agreed that we would process the metadata and make the books available to the public through Trove, ensuring that the digitized image or images are properly preserved and that the full text of the books will be available to the widest possible audience. Given all this collaboration, it is fitting that the last paper version of the library's magazine, the June edition, contained an article on the relationship between the library and the ADB. A copy is in your conference packs, and it is an article by Melanie Nolan and Christine Fernan titled Companions in Biography, describing the ADB's newly developed web presence and the role of the library in supporting its online transformation. And our hosting this conference is part of the ongoing relationship with the ADB. So you can see that ours is a happy relationship and we're really very delighted to welcome you here to this conference together with the ADB. And I wish you well for the two days of conferencing, today and tomorrow, here at the library. And my colleagues and I are keenly interested in the conclusions of your discussions about future developments for biographical databases. It's now my great pleasure to yield the podium to Professor the Honourable Gareth Evans, ACQC, Chancellor of the ANU. Gareth has been Chancellor of the University since the beginning of 2010, and he came to this role after illustrious careers in Parliament and the Ministry, in the law, and internationally as the President and CEO of the International Crisis Group, an independent organisation focusing on the preservation on the prevention, not the preservation, of <laughs> the prevention and resolution of global conflict. I'd ask you to welcome Gareth Evans. Well, thank you very much, Anne-Marie, and good morning, everybody. May I begin by uh, expressing my own respect for elders of the Ngunnawal people, past and present, on whose traditional lands we meet. I suspect that by now you're all a little welcomed out, having had the wonderful experience of being welcomed by Melanie last night, by the Acting Vice-Chancellor last night, 
uh, by Indigenous uh, Elder Paul Howes last night, by Michael Kirby last night, now by, um, where is it, Mr Allgood, um, this morning, here he is, Malcolm, uh, and now by, wonderfully, by Anne-Marie. So, uh, also, I have to say I had the views last night on the subject of long speeches by Anne Moyle, she who must be obeyed, so uh, I will, uh, under those circumstances, do my best to keep this short and tight. I've always rather liked in this respect that um, advice of W.A. Jordan, albeit in the context of the confessional, but nonetheless it has broader application, uh, be blunt, be brief and be gone. So here we go. Um, there are just a few things that I do want to say, uh, wearing my ANU, Chancellor's hat, and also personally. First thing is obviously that I'm very proud, and ANU is enormously proud, to be hosting the Australian Dictionary of Biography. It really was a very important day for the university and the country back in 1962, when Keith Hancock, working on foundations laid especially by Percival Searle and Laurie Fitzharding, persuaded the University Council to support this huge, multi-volume collaborative project, which has now uh, given us some nine million published words. It was an important day, as Anne-Marie said, when Anne-Marie, uh, when uh, Sir Robert Menzies um, launched the first volume uh, 50 years ago in 1966, an anniversary which was, I think, superbly commemorated last night by my dear friend Michael Kirby. I should perhaps add uh, very much my dear platonic friend, <laughs> Michael Kirby. <laughs> <laughs> in the light of his uh, revelations last night that it wasn't as I always thought my mind that first uh, uh, attracted uh, me to him in those student politics days 50 years ago. <laughs> uh, it was also a very important day, obviously, in 2006 when the first online uh, entries for the ADB appeared, foreshadowing a whole new era of development for the project. This is a project which has been magnificently served by its series of general editors, starting with Douglas Pike through Bede Nairn, Geoffrey Searle, John Ritchie, Di Langmore, and now, of course, Melanie Nolan. It's a project which has been magnificently served also by its other professional staff, not least its first and only employee for the first four years, Anne Moyle, and the army of unpaid volunteer uh, contributors and working party members, and also the institutional partners, um, including, of course, university history departments right around the country, and as we've heard again from Anne-Marie this morning, the National Library. As I said in blurbing that splendid history of the ADB, uh, edited recently by Melanie and Christine Fernan, the ADB captures the life and times and culture of this country in an absolutely distinctive and irreplaceable way. It's the indispensable record of who we are, and of the characters who have made us what we are. I couldn't be prouder of ANU's continuing role as custodian of this crucial part of our national legacy. On that continuing role as custodian, let me say that I'm absolutely delighted uh, to hear that future volumes of the dictionary are going to be published by the ANU ePress, bringing now the, the whole of the enterprise, not just its editorial management, back to where, with due respect to my alma mater, the University of Melbourne, it really should always have been, given that we are Australia's national university and it's at the heart of our value added that we host the big national projects, and the Australian Dictionary of Biography is unequivocally one of those. 
I want to also assure you, so far as future custodianship is concerned, that I'm totally confident that the University Council, which I chair, remains just as supportive of the ADB project and all that sails with it as it was back in 1962. No doubt there will be budgetary pressures as have been experienced with national biography projects elsewhere, as you'll no doubt be talking about uh, this morning. Pressures undoubtedly compounded by the need to take advantage of new digital technology to get ever more and ever more diverse material out there. But I don't have any sense at all that even with all the budgetary pressures that university is under, like everybody else these days, there's any mood anywhere at all in the administration to cut back that budgetary support, which is, of course, so crucial uh, for the project's future, even though there are other sources of budgetary support apart from ANU. ANU's is unquestionably the most central and crucial. But let me finally add in this respect that, uh, let me assure you, that if ever such a uh, mood does develop, then as long as I remain Chancellor, I'll be happy to regard this as a strategic rather than a management issue, and whatever crockery that needs to be broken in dealing with the bean counters will accordingly be broken. Let me, just, uh, let me just conclude with a couple of personal observations about the supreme importance of keeping the art of biography alive, not just as a source of detailed reference for historians and researchers, not just to satisfy our curiosity about the personal motivations and foibles that may or may not be the story behind the story, which may or may not help us understand why great events unfold as they do, and not just as an, as an instrumental vehicle in the sense of being a, uh, a source of inspiration to those who want to do great publicly important things with their lives. Or in that context, I suppose, also not just as sources of reassurance for those whose aspirations haven't yet taken off. And it's always nice to be able to read about some great and famous figure that he didn't amount to very much at my age. Uh, <coughs> I should add that I don't recommend in this respect that any aspiring politician should read any biography of William Pitt the Younger, <coughs> Prime Minister at 21. Um, of, course, of course, good biography is important for all these reasons. And I guess these sorts of reasons will always be the primary reason for dictionaries of national biography. But to me, the, to me, the ultimate joy of biography is as an immeasurably valuable art form in its own right. Good biography, after all, tells us so much about that most fascinating of all subjects, human nature. It tells us about ourselves. In helping us understand the lives of others, it helps us understand ourselves. As to what makes for good biography, that would keep me and all of us going much longer than I promised you. Now, I have to say that if I had wanted to detain you further, I didn't get much additional help last night when, just in an idle moment, I, I googled the phrase, joy of biography. The first link that came up, and you can check it and see for yourselves, is the joy of muscular Christian biography, which wasn't quite what I was looking for. Uh, and the second link, the second link, was to the biography of a woman called Joy, <laughs> who had, let me tell you, invented the miracle mop and a product, <laughs> and a pro product that has called itself Forever Fragrance. And there you are. So you don't get much help from the digital process when you, when you look at this. 
Um, we heard some fascinating, I think very highly relevant still views last night from Bob Menzies 50 years about what makes for good political biography. And there's again lots I could say about that now, but I won't. But let me just say this, for me, finally, an absolute necessity, an absolutely necessary, if not sufficient condition for good biography is writing. Writing which is always engaging and sometimes rather more than that. Just every now and again leaping off the page and grabbing you by the throat. To give just one example, not from the dictionary but from just something I was reading a couple of nights ago, um, a review by Joshua Epstein of a, uh, a volume of Saul Bellows letters in which the, the following sentence appears. Saul had two valves on his emotional trumpet, intimacy and contempt. Wow. <laughs> uh, I guess in the sheer relentless slog of selecting subjects, commissioning authors, getting entries factually correct, conforming to word limits, and now in wrestling with all the huge policy issues you'll be focusing on in this conference, about the future of dictionaries of national biography in the digital age, it's pretty easy just to be satisfied with a workmanlike, tradesmanlike product. And not always easy to be really demanding literary editor as well. But I do think we all recognise great biographical writing when we see it. And I do hope that as we continue to add to those wonderful volumes of the ADB and the DNB and the ADB and the other great projects represented here, as we continue to add those products to our bookshelves and our iPads, I hope that ever more of that product will not just be, as it always has been, fabulous research material, but fabulous writing as well. So let me welcome you all again from ANU and express the hope that you have, as I'm sure you will, an extremely productive and stimulating next two days. Over to you. Thanks, Gareth, and uh, thanks, Anne-Marie. We'll move straight into the uh, first session, and we're actually running a little bit early, uh, which is, uh, I, th I think it's almost the first conference where this has happened, uh, in my experience anyway. Um, the topic of the first session is uh, using lives, with a question mark, uh, utilising the rich databases we are creating. And uh, I'd like to immediately hand over to Professor Melanie Nolan, uh, who's the uh, general editor of the ADB, <coughs> and uh, also the director of the National Centre for Biography. Melanie. Thank you very much. Thank you, Anne-Marie, and thank you very much, Gareth. Um, I want to start, um, as we mean to continue at this conference, by posing hard questions. So first, what are the major challenges involved in producing biographical dictionaries in the digital age? And secondly, how does the ADB propose addressing these questions? What is the ADB managing to do in response to these challenges, which is, of course, not the same thing? And I do this fully cognizant of the history in two senses, but wishing to some extent to put it to one side. As mentioned, in 1995, the National Dictionary Community met in Congress here in Canberra at this very venue to consider the history of multi-volume 
alphabetically arranged collections of interpretive biographical articles, which most developed countries were producing. Dictionaries of national biography are a specific kind of historical writing, concise, scholarly, and hopefully reliable. At the end of the 20th century, national dictionaries attracted debate, and Anne-Marie's already talked to this. Were their instruments designed to vindicate past glories and national supremacy, or were they learned and specialised works without, which the early, without the earlier ideological overtones? And these questions were the subject of the 1995 conference, and it resulted in that publication, National Biographies and National Identity. Subsequently, general editors, including Lawrence Goldman and myself, have discussed this issue. Goldman noted that while inevitably marked by some of the attitudes of the age in some articles, the Oxford Dis Dictionary of National Biography was surprisingly free from many of the supposedly quintessential late Victorian opinions. While some have characterised national dictionaries as triumphant ships sailing through the second half of the 19th century, unshakably confident of their values and virtues, legitimising national identity, I have argued that the ADB was insufficiently engineered. That is, it was less directed in its shape at the outset than other dictionary projects. The language and used at the foundation of the ADB was prosaic and about usefulness. The ADB would be a useful record for research and a good vehicle for ANU university politics, which I'll draw a veil on. Two decades on, while we still debate these important issues, other issues have overtaken us. The traditional model of dictionaries of national biographies have been transformed. Most dictionary projects have made the cultural journey from book to online repositories. At the same time, there's been a new concern with representation and revision. The Oxford Dictionary of National Biography vastly increased its coverage of both women and representative citizens when it was published in 2004. And the ADB has always prided itself on having representative subjects. Yet the supplement, published in 2005, included many neglected or missing persons. With 504 subjects, it added 161 women and 49 Indigenous Australians' lives from 1580 to 1980. But critics still point to the statistics. There are still too few women at 10%, and particularly too few colonial women. We picked in many ways the fruit at the, at the, the easiest to um, pick off the tree. And too many military figures at 13%. Too few Indigenous Australians at 1.5%, too many Scottish and insufficient Irish, and too many working class, too few working class Australians. Indeed, given that we had just under 13,000 ADB subjects, and some of these are joint articles, it is of the estimated 9 million Australians who died prior to 1990, and that's the period we're currently working on, we have just too few people in general if the purpose of the dictionary is to be a fair demographic sample? And this is an important question. The latter point is particularly pertinent if we wish to take the next ambitious leap, 
which being online invites us to do. And that is to turn our half century of national, of national um, collaborative scholarship, 13,000 subjects, 3,273 portraits, nearly 9 million words and 60 million hits a year into a national research tool for history from below. Do we want to do that? Of course, that is not the only purpose we have. And in any society that is not entirely egalitarian on every social dimension, the socially, culturally, politically influential will not reflect the demography of the nation. In the 2004 Leslie Stevens special lecture, Oxford British historian Keith Thomas reviewed the changing conceptions of national biography. He was concerned with revision and representation and envisaged the creation of a database so vast that its claim to be a true national biography would be incontroversial. And he went on to say, now that the historians concern themselves with all sections of past population, there is in no principle no reason why many hidden lives should not be recovered. And there is no technological obstacle to storing them electronically. One day perhaps we shall have a database so vast as to claim to be a true national biography. Of course, a one-to-one -one map is a replica of the past, not a history or interpretation. To give up being selective is to give up the discipline of the dictionary. Maybe it would even involve giving up history. In 2012, Marcello Virgo, a University of Florence academic, suggested that a more thoroughgoing approach in using lies was needed, with new tools and services made available. And I quote, the compilation of a new generation of dictionaries of national biography in the form of databases or useful repositories for scholars might well be a new mission for this genre of writing national history. But are we sure that that is not a way of making nonsense of this old-fashioned approach to thinking and writing history? The question remains open. However, I will not be among those lamenting the death of the traditional model of dictionaries of national biography. So what is the new mission? Is there a place any longer for the discipline of national dictionaries? I want to argue that the ADB is developing a new mission that involves using lives at the same time as retaining the tried and true dictionary discipline. We are addressing these issues in a number of ways. And I'll give you some examples. We are widening our temporal span. I've recently commissioned articles on man and woman mungo the cremated remains of a family who lived 42,000 years ago around the shores of Lake Mungo in what is now southwest New South Wales. The articles won't be biographical in the usual sense. They are groundbreaking entries for the ADB, the first of many, I hope, for they will take us beyond the comfort zone of the usual verifiable written sources. Related to this, we are working on a wider project, a dictionary of Indigenous Australians. The contributions, of Australian the contributions to Australian lives of significant and representative Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander men and women is not adequately reflected in the ADB. The fields in which Indigenous people have excelled are many. The exploration of Australia, the pastoral industry, the armed services, art, music, culture, to name just a few. Importantly, work on smallpox by Jack Carmody, together with Boyd Hunter, at the Centre of Aboriginal Economic Policy Research at the ANU, has shown that, that Australian colonists did not outnumber the Aboriginal population until the mid-1840s. 
The small proportion of Aboriginal subjects between eight, before 1850 in the ADB is a particular challenge. Secondly, we are beginning a colonial women's project. There are 10 women to 585 men in Volume 1 of the ADB, and 11 women to 596 men in Volume 2. That's the Floria period covering 1788 to 1850. A significant number of these women are in shared or minor entries. You can see we've got a lot of work to do there. And we have created companion websites. People Australia, Obituaries Australia. As Christine Fernan and Scott Yedon will show, this is allowing us to vastly increase our coverage and is giving the potential to support all kinds of research. And that's the important point, is to support other kinds of research, biographical, historical, and demographic. We now have the capacity to register many people and to tell their stories. We're even registering stillborns in our database. And now that we are online, we can enrich our articles by linking to relative digital resources held by national cultural institutions. As Anne-Marie has mentioned, this includes the digitised newspaper references available through Trove, as well as digitised files held by national archives, particularly the World War I records. And we've also begun adding thematic essays, such as the study of Australian foresters, Australian um, legal dynasties, the Stevens, the Streets, bush ranges in the ADB, our statistics show that the last two strategies are working. People are staying longer on our site once they um, land there. They're clicking through our links. They're moving from them to the ADB article, to the obituary, if we have one, and then onto the thematic essay, and onto many other links. And we want to move on to our, um, our, our, our tools, if, they can, um, if we, we want to add that as well. But it is difficult to come up with a true national biography, more difficult than one might imagine. While big data is the catch cry today, a dictionary is neither a who's who, a database of Australian elites, or an expanded telephone book. The discipline of the dictionary is constrained by evidence, selections, and the need to be concise. The ADB has always held that a true national dictionary needs to capture both significant and representative Australian lives. It needs to provide a gallery of all the possibilities of being Australian, past and present, as far as our funding allows. The difficulty lies in the fact, however, that what is significant and representative changes over time. So national biographies have to be sustained, dynamic, never-ending tasks, and at some point revised, which is one of the greatest issues for all of us, and an even greater issue now that we are online. In 2004, a completely revised edition of the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography was published in hard copy and online at a very considerable undertaking expense. We at the ADB would dearly love to revise at, the, at least the earliest volumes, which were published 50 years ago, when a study of Australian history was in its infancy. But where is the money to come from? We haven't been able to find it so far. In the meantime, we've embarked on a program to at least ensure that all birth, death, and married details are correct in our earliest volumes. And Chris Kinnean has led this project, which is completely volunteer and outside um, the work of the um, unit at the ANU. It is such a modest project, but a considerable undertaking. Online users expect online information to be up to date, but we simply don't have the resources to keep updating entries when new information is discovered. We 
do have to make exceptions for prominent individuals, however. When Mary McKillop was made a saint in um, uh, 2014, an extra paragraph was added to her entry to include that information. One way we do assist people to discover new resources about people that have been published since our entry was written was by linking to the National Library's Resource Discovery Centre, Trove, where they can find any new books or articles. We'll be talking more about these issues of revision as well as Corrigenda, that's correcting our mistakes, another perennial problem tomorrow. As well as being concerned about representation and revision, now that we are online, we're concerning ourselves with using what we have and adding value and providing research tools as far as we can. The being online also gives us the opportunity to use the ADB and companion websites as a research tool and to be innovative. And let me introduce you to some of the projects we are developing. First, we are trying to be innovative in place. As a pilot project, we created an online map of Ludwig Leichhardt's journey exploration from Moreton Bay to Port Essington. You can read his digitised journal while tracing his trip via Google Maps. We're being innovative about foundational cultures. We started a major, pro major projects on the first three fleets to New South Wales, and Christine and Scott will talk about this in, in a moment. I've already mentioned the Indigenous Australian project. Both these projects crisscross any 1788 national building turning point. We're being innovative in terms of kin. Because we are naming family relationships in our indexing, we're able to create tools to draw family trees and family relation graphs. Family trees of A to B figures do not simply favour success. To the contrary, family history includes failures and, sadly to say, dead ends. And family history over time systematically can be used to interrogate typicality and representation in a way that a biography or a single case sometimes does not. The usefulness of family histories is the ability to show range. As Alison Light suggests in her recent book, Common People, tracking all the members of a family over time unsettles assumptions. The ADB and its companion websites offers us the opportunity of creating big data for families and mediating systematically between individuals, families and broader developments. All of the biographical records gathered and the visualisations or family trees developed are being made freely available to the public via the National Centre of Biographies websites. The people we're adding to Obituaries Australia and People Australia are often the mothers, fathers, siblings, business partners, friends and so on of the ADB to add an extra dimension to the entries. I can only do static. Christine and Scott are going to do the um, do the internet interactive. Um, but we're building up these family bases, and you go into any of the ADB articles, you can um, navigate around someone's family as well as the individual. Fourthly, innovation in terms of associational life, indexing, and that's the single most important thing, allows us to consider the associational lives of Australians. We are creating comprehensive database authority file of names of organisations, including workplaces, schools, clubs, that will be freely available to the public and can be used by other website creators to facilitate linking between the sites. And this is the hard one, the last one. We're trying to be innovative in terms of hidden lives, but this is difficult and perhaps even impossible. While some, such as Barbara Kane, observe, 
In the 20th century, it became impossible to contemplate writing a biography without being fully able to explore all aspects of an individual's lives, character, and behavior, including a focus on the person's hidden or unconscious motives, desires, and conflicts. This sometimes proves difficult. When Bede Nam became joint editor of the ADB in late 1973, he began the business of gathering certificates of birth, death, and marriages. For some people, we cannot get much more on their private lives than that. Indeed, blood type information shows that quite often people themselves are surprised over their genealogy. Our current revisions project, the ADB articles in volumes one and two, found just the birth, death, and marriage material to be extremely illuminating. Colin Matthews, editor of the Oxford Dictionary National Biography, suggested the conference in 1995 that the public-private antithesis is one still followed by most dictionary of national biographies, partly because the reaction against it is comparatively recent and partly because it's a serviceable way of incorporating such information in what is probably a brief article. To integrate fully the home and sexual life of a person who is at most in an ADB, uh, sorry, in a, a dictionary article, a for there for proper reasons, requires space, and space is money and time. But this incorporation is perhaps the central challenge. Our commitment to all of this is to reveal the diversity of Australian life and the critical part stories and their telling play in a democracy. More specifically, the politics of narrative practice or storytelling in modern Australia. But we can't know the intimate private story in all cases, as has been suggested that we should. Sometimes we can, but in many cases we will never be able to know people's hidden or unconscious motives, desires or conflicts. So there are limits on our innovation. And I'm arguing, I guess, for the impossibility of true biography in Colin Matthews' terms. So what is our method here? The techniques are informed by British historian Lewis Namia, whose anti-Whig interpretation and reputation rests on his innovative use of collective biography, what is known as posipography, in the study, in his case, of the 18th century parliamentary system in Britain. And here we have to distinguish between Namerism, Namier's historical method, and Namier's techniques. Namier's particular interpretations on the social political structure of England in the 18th century have been the subject of debate and many people here are more expert than I, but we just need to, need to concern us. Secondly, Herb, Hubert Butterfield and others were highly critical, more generally, of Namier's more general historical method. Butterfield argued that Namier's historical method an atomized everything, broke down complex historical events to simple social categories. Namier offered structured explanations, ignoring, Butterfield argued, the fact that the structure itself is a result of human choices and could be altered by human choices. And secondly, Butterfield argued that human action was inherently more complex than Namier's view on self-interested uh, interests suggested. Namier didn't take into account the significance and diversity of history and the role of professed ideas, beliefs, and principles. His critics criticised or accused Namier of taking the mind out of history, owing to his own dislike of abstract political theory and his belief that much of human behaviour is senseless and irrational. Be that as it may, thirdly, Namier's techniques are enduring and applicable here in a modified way. Namier's was a fabulously microscopic examination of the composition of successive Houses of Commons under George III, 
Where did MPs come from? What was their family background? And to what families did they marry? What and how much did they own? What was their education? What schools did they attended? Who were their friends? What prompted one on the other, or other to take up politics and stand for parliament? In what ways did each one get elected? Namia's method was based on the study of biographies of members of parliament and their constituencies and the way in which they worked together and was illuminated by careful research and psychological insight. He believed in psychoanalytical interpretation of character, upbringing, temperament, interests. He even went so far as to consult graphologists about the handwriting of an obscure 18th century squire. He would discuss the utterances, the lapses in the style of an Anubian politician for the psychoanalyst. His focus was to ask questions about families, associational lives and motivations. It proves applicable to other groups and other periods of time. Namia's technique was to study individual lives in minute detail before attempting a wider synthesis. His method was posopography, the use of biography, to explore the connections and the minutiae of networks systematically. For he believed that in order to understand an institutional society, it must be broken up into its component parts, and these studied in isolation and then in relation to the whole. So there were two parts to his technique. As Linda Colley in her 18, 1989 biography of Namia makes clear, he was committed both to the intensely detailed but also the penetrating analysis. He spent the last decade of his life producing three volumes of the History of Parliament, the House of Commons, 1754 to 1790, which made up of 2,000 biographies that he wrote working himself, nine hours a day in the basement of London's Institute of Historical Research with three full-time assistants, which the History of Parliament Trust funded, as well as with volunteers. By July 1960, all but 70 of the biographies were complete, and he began a, to plan a magisterial survey of his investigations in which he would sit down, set down his final version of 18th century Britain. When he died just one month later, not one word had been written. It's kind of a sad story. Namia saw the possibilities of considering political motivations in terms of schools, clubs, religions, business and trade union affiliations of their members, occupations, nationality, marriage, kinship. In theory, he was not excessively preoccupied with the individual at the expense of social collectivities and context. His thorough, indeed massive, research techniques called for cooperative work um, on a range of um, genres and groups and on a bigger scale than even Namia managed. This is clearly core biography dictionary business. For the ADB is only also a potential piece of social research. We've been concentrating on accumulation. We've made a start with analysis on elite history. The biographical registers of members of various parliaments was an offshoot of the original ADB biographical register established in 1954. The series of alphabetically arranged biographies with collective biographical int introductions relating to the members of the Australian legislators became at a time essential for research in Australian political history. Alan Martin and Patience Wardell published the first, a register of members of the New South Wales Legislative Assembly in 1959. By 1961, it had become decided to produce a continuing series of registers for each state and for the federal legislatives, entitled Australian Parliament's Biographical Notes, and several PhDs emerged based on interpretation of this material. And there has been a trickle of other collective accounts of ADB articles, Bernard Smith and others at the Power Institute undertook a biographical dictionary of artists and architects, which the ADB was involved in. 
More directly, the makers of Australian sporting traditions in 1993, edited by Michael McKernan, and the diggers 1993, edited by Chris Colcott Clark, with special editions of selected, with, had special editions of selected entries from the ADB. They were envisaged as the first of a proposed series of illustrated compilations from the ADB on specialist subject areas designed to reach new readers and expose the ADB to a wider audience, but the series never eventuated. One of the most systematic analysis was R.S. Neal's attempt to measure whether socially mobile mobility in the colonies was responsible for taking some of the sting out of the 19th century radical movement by analysing the social origins and characteristics of executive and administrative leaders in Australia from 1788 to 1850, who had entries in the first three volumes of the ADB. Now we are developing bigger data, we require prolonged collaborative effort and funding on a larger scale to use that data to answer significant social history questions. And we're not and no longer considered merely are concerned with elites. We wish to chart the associational lives of Australians. We're keen to chart family history over time. So related to this finally is the art of the possible. If dictionaries of biography are time-consuming and expensive endeavours, using lives equally time-consuming and expensive, even for the day ADB, which is conspicuous and not paying its contributors. Why digitisation makes it possible to build bigger databases of politics, the politics of accessibility is also an issue. We have one advantage down under. The ADB is freely accessible. It is not subscription-based. Trove, touch wood, is also freely accessible and will continue. This makes the ADB a particularly accessible resource and its resource tools being able to use more applicably in the community. So to conclude, what are the major challenges involved in producing innovative biographical dictionaries in the digital age? And there are obvious ones. The cost of sustaining a work of reference online and keeping up with technological changes. It is very expensive to develop new platforms and new looks for websites, but it needs to be done regularly. Secondly, the issue of maintaining Australianness in trans-global world because our funding and our workers mostly are volunteer and Australian. Thirdly, the problem of revision in an ever-changing world, how often and how much to revise. Fourthly, how to index entries so that they become data points for more interpretive national and transnational projects and for our users. But the one we are feeling most um, strongly is that the shortcomings of the existing ADB are not magnified as we set out to employ bigger data and use lives as well as to compile them. The ADB setting out to consider representative as well as significant lives and our considering families and associational lives over time is what we see as our saving techniques. Thank you, Melanie. Um, I think we'll move straight into the next uh, paper, um, as it leads on. Very, uh, Melanie, it, it leads on from Melanie's uh, address. Uh, I'd like to introduce uh, Christine Fernan, uh, who's the online manager for the ADB. Uh, Christine's been with the ADB for uh, a long time. Um, uh, before that, she worked at the Australian Bureau of Statistics. Uh, and uh, started with the ADB in 1998 as a research editor. 
Um, she's uh, also a considerable historian in her own right. Sorry to embarrass you, Christine. Uh, Scott Yeadon is our uh, computer programmer at the ADB. And uh, to uh, Scott's expertise uh, as a programmer, uh, we're indebted uh, because really he set up the system uh, that uh, not only adds to the work of the research editors, I might, uh, I might point out, but uh, gratefully taken on, uh, but has also allowed us to develop and uh, expand the work of the ADB in the ways that Melanie has uh, just outlined. So, uh, to hand over to Scott and Christine, their paper entitled uh, uh, The uh, National Centre for Biography and ADB uh, Website, The Value of Value Adding. Over to you. Thank you, Malcolm. Thank you. Right. Scott and I will demonstrate some of the work that we've been doing in the past few years. None of it is really new. We are doing what we have always done at the ADB. We are just doing it online now. We have always collected obituaries. We've still got filing cabinets full of them. We are, not, we are now just making them accessible on our Obituaries Australia website. The first thing the, the ADB staff did back in 1954 when the dictionary was in this formation was to search through newspapers, directories and government gazettes for information about people. The biographical references were noted on catalogue cards, which ultimate, ultimately became the biographical register from which subjects for ADB entries were chosen. In time, the register became a very large and useful resource. Researchers used to come in to consult it, and in 1985, a selection of its entries were published as a two-volume tome. Now we add all biographical register information to our People Australia website. We transferred these activities, the collecting of obituaries and the biographical register online partly because it made sense. We were doing it anyway. Why not make it available to everyone? We also did it because it will greatly increase our coverage and the research potential of the site. There are about 11,500 entries in the ADB, dealing with 12,700 individuals. If you really want to enhance its potential as a research resource, it needs more entries. We obviously don't have the resources to add more ADB entries than our current workload. What we can do relatively easily, and what it, does, what it makes sense to do, is to add companion websites. Obituaries Australia was launched in 2012. We have added almost 11,000 records to Obituaries Australia and People Australia since then. By next month, by the next month or so, we expect to have more records in these two sites than in the ADB. The potential for expansion is huge. Hundreds of thousands of obituaries must have been published over the years. It goes without saying that obituaries are not subject to the same degree of factual checking as dictionary entries, nor are they as well written. We generally only accept published obituaries as they have a degree of quality control. We, of course, can't correct obituaries. We can't correct errors in obituaries, but we can and do include the correct information in an annotation when it is pointed out to us. 
I just want to say something in defence of obituaries, which are often criticised. We often get criticism for them. We have many very good ones written by outstanding journalists, and they are given to us by these journalists, such as John Farquharson, Malcolm Brown, Jack Waterford, Harriet Veach, and Tony Stevens. Here's a list of John Farquharson's entries. And we're very lucky John Farquharson gave them to us, and it was his um, obituaries that helped us launch um, Obituaries Australia. We also have hundreds of obituaries which exaggerate a person's good qualities. But if they include information about their occupation, their education, who they married and when, and some of the organisations they were involved with, well then, as an indexer, I'm happy. Then there are those obituaries, often written towards the end of the colonial period, which give you a glimpse of what ordinary life was like. Two stick out in my mind. Eleanor Coppin, married at 20, then went off to remote West Australia with her policeman husband in the 1870s. Her lengthy obituary describes what life was like in that harsh environment, enduring willy-willies that brought down their shack, wading through knee-deep water with a five-day-old baby and undergoing days of jolting in a bullock wagon and then sleeping on deck in any space that could be found on a coastal lugger as she travelled to Roeburn to have her children. Still, after all that, she managed to live to 84. Mary Ann Kavanagh was not so lucky. The wife of a kangaroo shooter in Queensland, she died in 1901 at the age of 40 after giving birth to her 21st child. She supposedly had six sets of twins, including her last pregnancy. Read together, these two obituaries are powerful stories about the rigours of life for women in Outback Australia. We've also been adding records from some of the hundreds of out-of-copyright compendiums of biography, such as The Who's Who of the World of Women, published in 1930 to People Australia. Again, these entries are not as reliable and nowhere as detailed as an ADB entry, but they have been published and they can be used as the starting point for a profile on a person. You'll notice that Emily Anderson's husband is in the ADB and we have an obituary for her father. The websites have been developed so that users can move easily between them while still knowing which site they are in. The website banners and colours make that clear. All of the sites have the same layout and use the same indexing terms. Since 2012, we have greatly expanded the extent of indexing of entries that we do. Again, this was done to boost the research potential of the sites. Here's a typical entry from 2006 when we went online. We index for date and place of birth and death occupations held, cultural heritage, and religious influences. John Monash's entry has the indexing we now do. It also includes fields for cause of death, education, military service, including battles and regiments served in, awards, clubs, key events, legacies, organizations involved in, and workplaces. If he'd owned a pastoral property, we would have named them as well. We are also naming the type of relationship that subjects had with other people 
as well as the organisations, places and events which shape their lives. This labour-intensive type of index is considered old-fashioned nowadays, but it is the only way to produce the consistency required for accurate search results and targeted visualisations. The first visualisation that we created was the family tree. Scott created it because I was having trouble keeping track of where people belonged in the family structure when I was indexing. We decided if it was useful for me, the general public might find it useful, so we published it online. It is automatically generated from the information given in our related entries field. This tree is for Sir Alfred Stephen, a Chief Justice of New South Wales. It is a fairly straightforward one. Some families have cousins marrying cousins and intergenerational marriages and can get very complicated. Sir Alfred had 18 children. His two wives each had nine children. We have listed them all in our various websites. Some are in the ADB, some are in Obituaries Australia and some in People Australia. When you, scroll, when you scroll across the long list of children and observe the birth, birth years, one practically every two years, you get a much better picture of how the family fits together than if you were just looking at a list of names. His first wife died following childbirth complications in 1837. Their daughter, Emily, also died. So Alfred married again quite quickly and two years later, another child was born. Twins were born in 1844 and survived. Another set of twins was born in 1847, with one of them, Octavius, being stillborn. While on Sir Alfred, we'll just click on one of the organisations he belonged to to give you an idea of the type of associational indexing we are doing. If you click on St Paul's College at the University of Sydney, you'll find a list of everyone in the ADB that we have indexed so far who has had an association with that college. You can then go to People Australia to get the complete list. You'll notice it lists both the association they had with the college and the years of association. You can use the drill down button to find those who had an association with the college at the same time as Sir Alfred. The comprehensive indexing that we're doing could be used for all, so all sorts of biographical-based research projects, such as studying people at a workplace or a school, or a cohort of classmates, or a boatload of immigrants landing in Australia, or everyone associated with the rural, rural property over a period. At the moment, we are concentrating on family history studies. Last year, we undertook a pilot family history project based on former Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser's family. I won't go too much into it as we've described a lot of our findings in our last newsletter, which you've all got in your conference bag. Basically, what we wanted to know was would family historians assist us with information? What kind of information did they have? What kind of information could we ourselves find? What we didn't want to end up with was just a lot of records in People Australia that simply recorded birth and death details. We got lucky. We made contact with a number of people on Fraser's Jewish maternal side who were extremely helpful, helpful 
and made all their research available to us. We are also very lucky in Australia that in 2009, the National Library launched Trove. This great national resource makes contents from libraries, museums, archives, and other repositories freely available to users through a single search engine. It has made a tremendous impact generally on the work practices of humanities researchers. The last time I looked, you can search 1,200 digitised Australian newspapers at the same time through Trove. It has made a real difference to our work at the ADB. I'm not sure we could do the evaluating work we're doing without it. We use it to check for birth, marriage and death notices, which we then record on our websites, including the link so that people can go back to the original source if they wish. We, of course, also search the, new, the newspapers for other mentions of the person. We often get good results about schooling and organisations the people were involved with and maybe, if we're lucky, an obituary. We were particularly lucky with Fraser's relatives because a number of digitised Jewish newspapers are available through Trove. We didn't know when we started with, when we started that Fraser has a fascinating family, particularly his mother's Jewish paternal relatives. If you know of anyone thinking of working on a family history for a PhD or as a book, they couldn't do better than to study his family. It started in Australia with Samuel Solomon, a convict who arrived in Sydney in 1833. His wife and nine children followed him. The children married into the Keesing, that's Nancy Keesing's family, the Phillips, the Levies and Cohen families, among others, and began a dynasty of outstanding mercantile, artistic, political and philanthropic activity. And the real tragedy is he knew nothing <laughs> about any of this. Family members were partners in the very successful New South Wales-based merchant company David Cohen & Co and were also involved with the great Jewish merchant companies of Feldhain, Gotthoff & Co, the Michaelis, Hallensteins, Hoffnungs, Marks, and both the Isaac Tobacco and Isaac Sugar merchant families. Some of Samuel Solomon's grandsons returned to England in the 1890s to take over the retail business of the childless uncle David Lewis in Liverpool. They achieved great success with a number of their children ending up with a number of their children ending up in the ODNB. Very importantly, they also established a business base and a home base in England for their Australian cousins. Family members also married into the great New Zealand merchant families, and some of them are in the New Zealand Dictionary of Biography. Quite a lot of Solomon's descendants ret returned to England to live or just for periodic family visits. The ties between the Australian and English branches of the family are still very strong. The movement of people during the colonial period between the Australian colonies and between the colonies and overseas countries, in particular New Zealand and England, is another piece of information we are recording in our database because it's something that historians are particularly interested in. We've now started on another project based on the first three fleets to Australia. We deliberately chose this project because one of the ADB's aims is to revise its early volumes, adding new records to our database relating to this period will help us when the time comes to choose new entries. What we are doing 
is adding records in Obituaries Australia and People Australia for all the people, be they convict crew, marine or governor, who set off from England in the first three fleets to New South Wales in 1787 to 1791. As well as mapping the fortunes of the fleeters, we are recording, we are adding records for their children and grandchildren who were born or settled in the colony. The purpose of the study is to understand more about family life during the colonial period of New South Wales. What kind of society was transported to the colony? What impact did convictism have on a family's long-term prospects? What led to some families achieving great prosperity over the generations, while others weren't as, as successful? We are also very interested in investigating contact history. We've already registered a few marriages and partnerings between the Indigenous and settler population. We'll be naming any Indigenous massacres and skirmishes as events and indexing people known to have participated in them. We are also listing people's participation in other events and their alliances to various causes and people. William Bly, for example, was a controversial figure in early Australian history. ADB entries and obituaries of people of his time often state whether the person was for or against Bly. So we are recording people's stance towards him in the related entries field. We confined our project to the first three fleets because we had to set some parameters to make the study achievable within our resource constraints. We've talked to some historical demographers who are working with us on the project and they've agreed that this should provide useful results. There has, there has already been a lot of biographical research on the first three fleets, in particular Molly Gillen's The Founders of Australia, a biographical dictionary of the first fleet, and Michael Flynn's The Second Fleet, Britain's Grim Convict Armada of 1790. The biographical database of Australia is also proving a valuable, very, a valuable resource, as are the many family histories of fleet families held by the National Library. So we've got a lot of resources that we can build on as a start. Despite all the family history information available on the web and ancestry nowadays, we're finding there's that extra bit of useful information in the published family histories. We have no idea how many people we are going to have to trace. If you've read the description of the project we included in our last newsletter, we estimated that the number of people who made the journey was 5,000. Many died during the voyage or shortly after landing. Many fleeters never married each other, while the gen many married each other, while the gender imbalance meant that many men never married. Actually, I'm not so sure about that last statement anymore. So far, every fleeter we've recorded in our websites had at least one partner, but it's still early days in the project. We estimate we have we may have to trace about 1,500 families. We're hoping to publicly launch the project in the next month or so to garner the enthusiastic involvement of family historians. We're hoping that they'll actually do a lot of the research on their own families and then provide it to us. <laughs> um, using Ancestry, Trove and various online official documents, it is possible to find quite a bit about a person as this entry on Lewis Cribbs shows. I started off with his obituary, 
was able to find some useful digitised newspaper resources. He's a bit of a scoundrel, this fella. And with the help of some other resources, was able to construct a fairly comprehensive biographical profile. We've been working on the project for about two months and have recorded just over 1,200 individuals so far. The bulk of the records fall within the colonial period or early 20th century, though a few of the grandchildren died in the 1940s and the spouse of one grandchild died incredibly as late as 1971. Scott has isolated the records from the rest of the database so we can show you some of the kinds of information that we can derive from our indexing. Remember, this is coming from the ordinary indexing that we do for all of our entries. We are not doing anything special for this project. The first map shows people's birth location. We'll start at generation zero, the fleeters. Not surprisingly, 99.99% were born in the United Kingdom, Scotland and Ireland, but not Wales so far for some reason, I don't know, they're law-abiding or, <laughs> or something. <laughs> um, the person born in Canada was a soldier. The two people born in Australia were the partners of partners of First Fleeters. <laughs> it can get quite complicated. To get a full picture of family dynamics, dynamics, we are registering all partners of people. So you can end up following a partner of a partner of a partner plus all their partners, so it gets really confusing. But <laughs> If we go to generation one, there's still a lot of people coming out from England, as well as births mainly centred around the Hawkesbury area in New South Wales. By generation two, there's still a great migration from England and a trickle from other countries. Um, the families in New South Wales are now starting to move out to Queensland and New Zealand. The place of death graph is interesting. In generation zero, the fleeters, it's the soldiers, sailors and governor going back to England to die. Plus, the very successful convict turned businessman, James Underwood, who went back to England with his convict wife to retire and subsequently die. In generation one, only a few go back to England. The rest, you can see, starting to spread out from the Hawkesbury region. Generation two, the grandchildren, are spreading out even further, as you'd expect. The migration for the families we've so far recorded is more towards Queensland than towards Victoria. And there's still not a great lot going back to England. This graph shows family relationships. That's the families into which individuals are marrying. The fleeters are the green circles. Here's what the graph looks like in generation one, the children. And here's generation two, the grandchildren. The graph basically falls in upon itself. We've only completely recorded seven families so far and already it's looking like this. 
It's a very graphic display of the interconnectedness of at least those seven families. Those lonely looking families on the edges of the graphs are families we haven't done much work on yet. Basically, that's just the fleeters stage of the, them, those people. If we look at some other charts, this first one looks at the average number of children per family. We've confined it to the seven families we've completely recorded. I thought the family size would be larger because a lot of them had 12 or 15 children, but of course some had only a few. Quite a number of people had multiple partners and had a few children with one partner and a few with another. So the children are recorded as being in different families. So we decided to also record the number of ch children women had overall and the number of children men had overall. It didn't make any real difference to the total, however. This next graph shows the spacing of children in generation one and two. As you can see, there's not much difference. The rest of the graphs cover all of the people, the, all the 1,200 people we've so far recorded. Unsurprisingly, this next chart shows that they were marrying young and were often continuing to marry following the death of a partner, which is also unsurprising given that there was no social security and for the fleeters generally no extended family to look to for support. So far, our successful convict, James Underwood, is the only fleeter we have recorded who had a sibling, parent or cousin in the colony. His brother, Joseph, came out as a free settler to join James's business. We created the next graph to see if there was a tendency towards later age at marriage in generation two. There is slightly, but there are still some very early marriages. One, one woman age 14, four age 15, and nine age 16. The next graph shows the age of fleeters when they arrived in New South Wales. We then graphed just the convicts to see if they were sending out nation building stock. The average age of death graph puzzled us for a while. Why would the fleeters, most of whom were convicts, have lived longer than not only their children but their grandchildren? We finally realised that most of the fleeters came out as adults, so the results are distorted in that the other two groups include childhood deaths. So we took out all deaths below the age of 18, and it does make a difference, though not as much as we perhaps naively expected, given that they were living in a healthier environment, supposedly. If we take a look at the graph for those dying under the age of 18, the majority of deaths occurred in the first couple of years of life. Basically, if you made it to four years of age, you were likely to make it to adulthood. The next graph shows partners by generation. We've been very surprised to find that during the whole period, only 31 people, 17 men and 14 women, remained single, given that there was supposedly a great surplus, surplus of males in the colony. The graph indicates that right from the beginning, the majority of people had only one partner in their lives. A much smaller percentage had two, and even smaller percentages had three and four. We didn't, we've come across a few bigamous marriages, including a person in the ADB, but he perhaps didn't know, as it was his wife who was the one who was still married. 
Generally, people were law-abiding in this respect and waited for their spouse to die before remarrying. We did the next graph to see if religious influence had an effect on the number of partners they had. It didn't. didn't make a difference at all. The immigration status of people is not surprising. The convict column in Generation Zero was sore as we add more records. It's interesting that convicts are still being recorded in Generation Two. They are people marrying into our families. As a matter of course, when we can find the information, we are listing the ship in which each person came to the colony and in what capacity they came, as a convict, convict's family, bounty immigrant, assisted immigrant or unassisted immigrant. The final graph is occupations. Unsurprisingly for Generation Zero, convict is the main occupation, followed by farming and British military. In Generation One, farming has taken over the number one spot and publican is number three. It's still a rural dominated economy in Generation Two, but as well as farming, there are now a lot of pastoralists and some politicians and other professionals. What do we hope to gain from the study? We'll be producing papers ourselves and hopefully working with historians on various thematic essays relating to the project to add to our websites. We will also make the data available to historical demographers for their own analysis. Plus, of course, we will have thousands of more records and data on our websites that people can use for their own research purposes. I hope we've demonstrated to you some of the great value you can get from comprehensive indexing. It's not as hard to do as you might think. I was part of the team that indexed the ADB when it went online in 2006. Gavin McCarthy, who'll be presenting tomorrow, led that project. He was keen to do then the type of indexing that we're doing now, but we just didn't have the time. Even checking a place name back then involved looking up a hard copy of a gazetteer. It was painstaking and time-consuming work, especially if it was a little village in England or a place name that had changed over time or you were trying to find the closest town to an outback station. Now all that information is online. It takes seconds to check. There has never been a better time to be an indexer. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks to all three of our uh, presenters there. Um, it's uh, two really fascinating papers, I think, and I, I learned a bit, even though I'm daily immersed in the uh, daily grind of uh, producing the ADB. Um, we have plenty of time for uh, questions and discussions, so um, over to you. Yes. William Flynn, who was a Governor-General, um, but it's 
two young boys who took him up into his royal palace to check him out. Um, now, in the 83 programme release, there's all discussion on whether we should rename Sir William Sweeney Brides because of his um, his, his calling and grace, as it were. Um, but we're not going, apparently we're not going to name it because when we started looking at the other big names like Rainey, we found that Rainey ran a string of brothels. <laughs> because it's quite remarkable that someone who has that penchant and yet becomes Governor General, you know, Paul Parkinson, as a human being. So I think that's a really interesting thing because um, it involves numerous elements of New York journalists. If anyone is a, a fan of Eric Robinson, um, You've asked a really good question, Jill, which picks up so many of the aspects which we're dealing with at the moment. Um, there's a Royal Commission at the moment um, looking at um, you know, systematic abuse in institutions in Australia, um, which will be reporting um, next year. Um, we, we've had a concerted campaign um, by um, people who have been abused and are supporters of um, those who have been abused to um, just delete articles of people who have not yet been named, because the Commission hasn't reported, but who have um, um, been mentioned or um, have been involved in the um, consideration. So it's, it's, a, it's an issue that we're, we're dealing with um, all the time. I guess it speaks to the issue of revisions itself. What we envisage is that the articles that have been written remain as they have been written. Um, and that they are a capsule for um, thinking and context and um, the writing at the time. Um, and that we will, when we come and find the resources to revise, that we will keep that whole layer and then we, we will have another layer. The people ask the questions about why that wasn't known then and why it's um, known now. But your question is a much more immediate question. Um, and I want to just answer in two parts. One, one, the Mary McCulloch one, for instance. So she was the first um, saint of Australia. And the Catholics of Australia had their Christmas lunch, and then they went to the computers. And she was the most hit-upon woman, hit-upon person in our um, index for two, for, two, um, to, for two weeks. And the article, I have to say, is a poor article in retrospect. It was written a number of years ago. And the Catholic Church, in order to um, sustain her sainthood, went into huge um, um, research project for it. And whilst there's a lot about miracles, there's also an awful lot about um, verifiable and um, documented um, material about her life. We really should rewrite it. So the, the, the short answer is that we judge each case by its merits, um, to some extent each case by um, what, uh, what the... Um, the person who's drawn our attention to this, who wishes a corrigender or wishes a change, um, has raised. Um, and um, yes, we are, um, when the Royal Commission reports, we will be going through systematically and adding 
um, that detail. But at the moment, because we aren't revising, we're adding details. It's a corrigenda issue, not a, not a rewriting or um, a reinterpretation. Um, um, and of course, all of these, we have a great deal of co correspondence with our public, and a great, all of this is, is, is added to the files, um, and it's part of the conversation between um, the public and ourselves. So um, um, I think we're uh, trying to deal with it on a case-to-case -case basis. We have no policy of um, systematic revision, and certainly um, in Australia with people um, having, um, uh, if it's issues to do with um, Criminality. Um, th these are these are not matters that we won't be having um, from now on. Other questions or comments? Yes. You've um, raised the issue of um, you know documentation, and that's that's our limits. Is that we um, what, what may or may not happen is one thing. Um, what we can have evidence for and to um, discuss is an, is another. Um, and so the status of single remains um, that, even though it may not indeed have been the case, um, and the reasons for that um, we may not know. Um, so that that remains an issue of um, speculation and and. Um, we are committed to um, having um, documentary or other um, verifiable um, sources for all of the material we have in the ADB. Chris. No, no, we haven't. <laughs> yeah, we. Yeah, we. Were, I was just talking about that with someone last night. That's one thing. Out of all the, <laughs> we index practically everything else about their lives, but we haven't indexed about that. And I was wondering, should we? And how do we do that? And we probably should, but um, we'd be very interested to hear if we should. Obviously, we should. <laughs> Where, where, where would we put it, and how, would we put it? And how delicately we will? <laughs> we, 
what, what field will we put it in? And <laughs> it is time. I mean, no, I don't think any of the dictionaries are doing that yet. Uh, are they? Anyone <laughs> from the other dictionaries want to say something? Yes. Because we, we thought, well, you know, what does that mean? If you, we thought, well, okay, we can identify writing that has gay tools or gay LGBTI tools. We can connect them to the nursing together in that way. But sexual orientation is not necessarily sex. It is for some people, but it's not for others. And then you come into that field which is particularly geared in um, assigning sort of temporal spaces to somebody's sexual orientation. Well, yeah, we've got Manali and Petra Guide. They're down as partners. Um, we, we don't distinguish that at all. We've got, um, with the Fleet of this project, we're recording de facto partnerships. Um, anyone who has a child with someone, whether they're married or not, we're recording as a partnership. Anyone who is known to have lived with someone for a certain period, we're calling that as a partnership, whether they have a child or not. So um, we're recording every type of partnering so if, if they're married we're calling it a marriage if any other type of living arrangement or having a child together we're calling a partnership so um yes as as no <laughs> no, we're not in.
Is this in ADB entries you mean? Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 probably the old old ADB entries. Yeah. Is it? I mean, the, the first ADB articles were um, commissioned in 1961, and we're, we're battling with this, um, and, and um, I share your um, concern with some of the language used. Um, we put, we've, the, the, it is a difficult one, other than revising all of them, um, and one of the things we're doing is just to simply notify on the top of the pages when the article was written, so that people will realise that the articles um, I can assure you since 2008 this language has been um, um, avoided um, uh, and, and, and it, it is interesting because all of our authors are asked to write a word picture of the person and, um, and it's interesting how few do um, and it's obviously um, easy to do a certain kinds of um, appearance aspects obviously and, and that's what's that's what's been picked up so it's something it's one of the issues we struggle with um, I mean the um, Oxford Dictionary National Biography took uh, what nearly uh, 90 years to be revised um, so on that basis we shouldn't be looking at our revisions for some years um, uh, letting it um, you know th this is this is the, at the nub of when to revise and when not to and whether we um, um, change language was inappropriate um, and do a systematic change of all the articles, whether we leave the articles as they were written and leave that for a systematic revision and it's something which we are grappling with and our, um, our decision at the moment is to leave it until a systematic um, revision. And despite that, what, is, what, what astounds us is that, you know, with all of the information on the web now, with all of the other understandings, people still go to the ADB articles, articles that we don't think are particularly um, good or have major flaws. And that's because there's still in, 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 in this, um, you know, maze of information, a need for concise articles, a place to start. And so um, with all their warts and all, these articles are still, um, uh, people are finding those useful.
Yes, it's a conversation. The, the AGB's, um, um, you know, never written um, a selection criteria. Um, the, what happens is that it was established in a federal way, um, in a national collaboration, so that we have working parties in all the states, and we also have some for themes on Commonwealth, um, Indigenous Australians, um, and the armed forces. And so these working parties are completely autonomous. It was in fact, one of the, the issues of the politics of setting up the ADB um, um, about having a decentralised um, system of, um, of selection. And the two criteria are representative and, um, and someone who has um, achieved life of significance. Um, and it, it is interesting how many of the representative group get in. It's probably decreasing oddly now. We've got to make more efforts now than we did in the first volumes to have that representative group. Um, so we have, you know, a deliberate decision was made either at the centre or at the working parties to have a rabbiter, you know, Joe um, Copley, who killed 288 rabbits overnight, you know. So, uh, you know, we, we, we have a, a, a decision to make um, um, a tattooist, uh, you know, certain kinds of um, people. And it, it, we, there, there are patterns in who are selected. So, for instance, um, we're now looking at um, who's selected when, and women headmistresses. You know, we have a uh, hundred and something women headmistresses, but it's only between a certain period. You know, 1890, we have, I think, two after, after the Second World War. Um, so it's, it's uh, a, a conversation um, between um, the working parties and um, the centre about um, commissioning. The, um, I guess the only change now is that the I have a I have a quota of 2.5%. So we have a very strict quota based on per capita for all of the working parties to fill, and they can fill that in several ways. They can fill it by having uh, long articles, or more um, usefully, most of them have found that it's um, second rank, third rank to, to get people who are um, uh, not there is not information elsewhere easily available. Um, so we don't have many six and a half thousand word articles, which are our, um, our maximum. Um, and but at the same token, we're not doing 500 word articles anymore because we're able to write more on them. So we have constraints on word limit, quota, um, and, and choosing. But one of, the, one of the groups we're finding now, which are falling between the stools, are the transnational um, expatriates, um, because they don't belong to one of the um, working parties, and that's one of the um, groups. So we, we, we've probably never before, I think, and Chris might correct me, looking at the at who's in there and who we might need. And we're able to do it because of the indexing. We're able to um, find out on the lists immediately um, what is the nature of the, um, of the list. We also publish them, um, just as um, Leslie Stevens did in the 19th century. We, so the last, the, the, work, the period we're working on now, from 1991 um, to 2000, people who've died in that period, um, we published online. Um, all of the names that have been um, proposed by the working parties, and we're open to a conversation of people that we might have considered to be missing, or um, people that simply ought, which ought, are good stories that we ought to have in, um, in the ADB. born roughly in a particular decade and where he lived and 
narrowed it down to three possible people, <laughs> investigated those three people, and, and I, I think have solved this, this mystery of who the pro Shavala of catching stellar fish are was, and I don't think I would have got it otherwise. <laughs> yes. We'd love to do that, and we've talked to um, Film and Sound Archive and um, also to National Library people. Cost, resources, um, ability to do it. Um, it's certainly on our list to do. Alice, you've got you've got at the heart of it um, that uh, Brian Harrison has done um, is, is actually producing a um, a dictionary of Australian elites, and one of the first um, phases in doing that was to look at the ADB and to see how many we had of certain categories. Um, and you know we have something like well we have all the prime ministers, but we have you know 55% of um, high court judges. Um, um, so he went through all of the groups that he would consider to be um, in the elite, and the ADB. Um, has a fair, um, you know, spread of them. But again, we, we don't have all of them. The only the only two categories that we have all on is VC winners and um, prime ministers, um, and so it's always it it's not something new. It's always been a mix between the social history and um, and elite. Um, and like I mentioned with the as I mentioned with the um, decisions of the working parties. I mean, I've, I I go around the working parties, and they 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 often have um, you know. Um, I mean, five or six women from the Country Women's Association, and um, they've all been eminent. Um, do we put all five in? Um, what aspects do they add to our understanding um, of, um, of people of that kind, or simply um, their achievements, which, which one stands out? And they do that balancing at a very small level, but we also do it as, at a larger um, level. And it is simply a question of balance. There is no... Um, uh, model if they come in and we say, well, you've got, um, uh, you know, uh, too many Aboriginals in Western Australia, um, um, too many deaths in custody, um, too many Country Women's Association people, that, 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 that we, we, we're all the time just um, having a balance. Um, and 
all the way through uh, judgments are made, you know, um, you have to know, and this is the issue of the context in the biography, you have to know what the general context is, uh, and often to one of the requirements is to consider the legacy of someone or their achievement. And you often got, you, in order to do that, you have to have the context. Um, and so, um, again, that balance between um, representative even of the elite, you know, what, 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 are, what are their achievements? And individual authors are all the time doing that balance and we're trying to do it on the whole. So I'm not sure I can answer your question any more precisely, because I think you answered it yourself. Uh, is that it is a tension um, and something we have to um, balance up. I guess we don't, we don't have a technical issue on that. I mean, we've got people in the ADB who um, never came to Australia. Um, Lord Sydney, you know. Um, we, we've got people who, who were considered to be important. So the, 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 the issue is um, not just Australians in the world, which is a new kind of category. Um, it has been, up until this time, uh, their contribution to Australian life, um, and, and that's, been, that's been the kind of um, measure. But with a population of over 20% expatriate, you know, this is an issue which has e emerged and will be one, certainly, as we're perilously close to the present, is one that we're, uh, we, may, we may have to set up a working party on um, expatriate um, Australians. Thanks, John. I think um, Gareth might have been a bit premature here. Um, um, look, we, we, ha we had a, a contract with Melbourne University Press, um, and our contract lapsed two years ago. 
um, all the volumes of the ADB um, up until it went online 2006 sold 10,000 copies um, and were in print. Um, and the last volume, volume 18, they only printed 1,500 and I think they've still got half of those to sell. Um, and the cultural institutions, um, we, we get phone calls quite often um, increasingly from um, you know, public libraries um, asking, is everything in these books online? Can we hock off these books you know, at the local um, fair for $10 a copy and not have to, not have to house them? Um, so um, you know, uh, the, the demand for the print is, um, is dropping. But there is, a, there is a group who likes to read it in the bath, who's had every copy, um, wants to continue to have it on their shelves. Um, and so, um, um, and it's actually relevant to the conference, we've experimented. Um, ANU Press has done um, uh, Barry Jones's world biography to see if they could do a, a, a dictionary and of, a ma of high magnitude to high standard, but also to maintain the online, to have annual updates, because this is something that publishers haven't really um, got into. And it's worked. Um, and so, um, you know, we've been under a bit of duress. If, uh, three vice chancellors have all asked me why isn't ANU Press publishing, um, you know, the ADB. The, AD, the ANU owns the intellectual property. And so this is something that we, we are doing. We're now talking to ANU Press. And, and so we are working on online. We're publishing annually online. But there will be books on print-on-demand through ANU Press, and it will be four years from now that the next volume's ready to be, um, ready to be printed. So um, um, you will be able to add another volume to your, to your shelf. Um, uh, we'll call a morning tea break now and uh, assemble back here at uh, 11.30 for the next session. Uh, could you please join me in thanking our three presenters? I thought that was